0: Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Finally, a check-in with one of the oldest and most successful asset managers in regenerative agriculture. After five years, he's back on the podcast to share the updates on their investment strategies in Australia and the US, the Forestry Fund in Ireland, And their latest strategy, a 250 million tree crop fund focused on Europe. Why are they focusing on orchards, tree crops, etc., and why on Europe? Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture. Investing as if the planet mattered. Podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities, and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food, and what we eat. And it's time that we, as investors, big and small, and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits, and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode, today with the co-founder of SLM Partners, Paul McMahon. Welcome back on the show, Paul.
1: Hi, Kun, Great to be here and great to talk to you again
0: after so many years. Yeah, we do check in and chat in the meantime, but the last episode we recorded was number three, actually, which is five years ago, one of the first episodes we ever recorded. So I'm very happy to have you back. I'm very happy that SLAB Partners is still alive and kicking in the region ag investment space and that we can have this update.
1: Brilliant. No, great to be here and yeah, I look forward to fill you in some of the things we've been working on and uh, what we're planning to do in the next few years.
0: Absolutely. So let's start with a brief overview. I will obviously link the interview we did five years ago in the show notes below, plus links to the website, etc. But in a few sentences, where is SLM? Or a few more sentences. I mean, we have time. Where does SLM stand as we're talking now, November 2021?
1: Yeah. So it's been a busy five years since since we last spoke. You know, I think we're. Continue to develop an asset manager firm that can use investment capital to scale up more regenerative ecological farming and forestry systems. That's always been the mission since we started 10 years ago, and that's so very much at the core of what we do. We've got um, three different strategies now around the world. Uh, we actually started in Australia, where we raised a grass fed beef cattle fund in 2012. I know you've had my partner, Tony Lovell, uh, on the show a couple of times, who sadly passed away recently, but we continue that work in Australia. We acquired over a million acres of land. We're using holistic plant grazing to restore grasslands in a big way. We also have some quite big carbon projects there, which have been a, a great success. So that's in Australia. In the US, we have a team out of New York where we are um, investing in organic farming. And our core strategy there is we, we find organic farmers, in, in mostly grain farmers in the Midwest, who want to grow. We work with them to find land. We then acquire that land and enter into long-term leases with the farmers. So 10-year leases with, on quite flexible terms, which really helps them through that organic transition and gives them long-term access to land as well. And that's been going well. We set up a couple of separate accounts, one with a very large institutional investor, and we've bought about 10 farms over the last two years, and um, we're actually uh, participating in three or four different auctions this week, so hopefully we'll have some more (laughs) by the end of this week. Um, So that's been going well. Um, And then in Europe, we raised the Forestry Fund in 2018, focused on Ireland, my homeland. We raised a fund backed by the European Investment Bank's natural capital financing facility and most European investors, and what we'll be doing there is um, acquiring existing semi-mature forest properties, which have been sort of built up through government grants and government support over the last 20 years, a little bit neglected now, quite fragmented, so we're aggregating them into a portfolio, putting them under professional management. But the key impact story there is, is shifting away from the conventional methods of forestry in Ireland, which is very much based on clear felling and monocultures, shifting away from that to something called continuous cover forestry. So we maintain permaforest cover, we, we selectively harvest, we promote more diversity within the forests, And we think we get a great commercial result, but also we get a lot of environmental benefits as well. So that funds, been, we got about 80% deployed, we bought a lot of properties, it's going well, and they're very pleased with that. So I think altogether now we've got almost $200 million in assets on the management. Um, we're just as excited as ever about the, what we find on the ground, talking to these great farmers, great foresters, You know, who have expertise in the ecological management, which are profitable.
0: Has that changed a lot? Has that shifted? What is... What have you seen on the ground? I don't
1: think it's shifted. I think you know those farmers and farmers have always been there, and I think there's probably just more time has passed. Therefore, yes, more proof, let's say, in demonstration of track record or you know, or an impact and, and profitability is there. You know, I think then there are as market forces continue to align to get behind some of these uh, these ideas too. You know, whether that's the growth of organic, you know, uh, food markets, uh, whether it's you know, new regenerative agriculture schemes where there's a, a, a keener focus on multifunctional forestry. So I think, yes, yeah, certainly the consumer demand and policy, regulatory environment continues to shift in its favor. But I think the operators will have been doing this quietly for, for decades. It's just now maybe they're getting a bit more attention, <laughs> which, which is a good thing.
0: And on the investor side, that has it shifted over the last, I hope so, but I'm looking yeah. forward to hear from you in the last five years, because I remember with Tony, when I met him, I think 11 years ago, let's say the first managed grazing, holistic managed grazing fund I think one of the first in the world, in Australia, it wasn't easy even mentioning grazing differently or grass. Like, there was a lot of explanation explaining to do. In this case, do you see that, I, I really hope you say yes, but do you see that, that has shifted even in the last five years? What is your feeling on the ground of the investor side of things, not necessarily the land steward?
1: Yeah, I think probably the, the biggest change has been on the investor side. There's definitely much greater uh, appetite for what we do. I think it's driven by two things. On, on the one hand, you have almost a purely financial imperative where you have... Big institutional investors worried about low yields from bonds, you know, overpriced equities, looking for diversification. You know, carving allocations to real assets. Within real assets, then they might do infrastructure, real estate, but increasing now allocating maybe one, two percent to timber and farming. So I think we're seeing more and more of that, more of these allocations to, to our area because they want you know, diversification, inflation hedging, and, and, and purely financial, let's say, uh, characteristics. But then, of course, the other big driver is really coming from more the impact side. is coming from You know, the climate change and policy and drivers is a huge interest in nature-based climate solutions at the moment, in biodiversity, ways of storing carbon in the ground, on the ground. So I think that's... And a lot of these investors are making commitments themselves to their stakeholders, which they need to meet. And so managers who can put together strategies with the right institutional scale and quality and the right persistence and processes, I think will get a, a good reception now, more so than, say, five years ago.
0: And now you sort of extended your view on Europe. I mean, you focus focused obviously on the continuous cover, the forestry side of things, which we talked about in the last interview. And also you wrote a great white paper on it. I will link it below because it's very, it can be very visual as well to see the difference between clear fell, which just for the listeners is basically a mature forest where all the trees are the same size and height and they're cut at exactly at the same time. So is, you see this big scar in the middle of the landscape, left and right, you see still the forest that is maybe going kind to of cut next year or in two years time compared that to continuous cover, basically very selectively harvesting. So you can see some great comparison in photos and why it makes a lot of sense. Also from the return perspective, which is great when you're talking to pure financial investors. So I will link that white paper below and you see the results in Ireland. And you decided that, let's say you wanted to focus more on permanent crops in Europe why that focus? I mean, you're doing a lot of work in the U.S. I think there's an endless appetite there for organic uh, shifts, etc. And yet you decided to not focus on that for the next five years. But actually, I mean, that will continue, but also set up a more pure focused strategy in Europe and beyond Ireland, because that obviously that work continues.
1: Yeah, no, we'll continue our work in the U.S. and we're looking to actually expand there not away from organic grains towards more permanent crops, too, actually, through through cancer, actually. So it's, it's kind of nice in a way the two geographies are going in parallel, I think in Europe, yeah, we we were having a great experience with the Irish Forestry Fund, but we're coming to close to full deployment, thinking, what do we do next? And we'd love to do a second fund in Europe. And I think one thing we found in Ireland is, um, while the investment thesis really works, there is a limit to how much scale you can get, just because it's a small country and fragmented forest estate. And so if we wanted to develop a, a more institutional scale and quality fund, then we would need to look to a broader set of European geographies. So we started looking at other European geographies, looking at forestry. I think we also decided to then expand away from pure forestry towards more permanent crop orchard systems, where we found some really good opportunities in Spain and Portugal, as well as more mixed agroforestry systems, where you're mixing trees with grazing or trees with crops. So I think it's what we're designing now is um, is a, a broader pan-European tree crop fund. We're looking to raise €250 million. Euros,
0: Sorry, €250, 250, right? 250
1: million, Euros, yeah. About half of that will be allocated to forestry, but the other half will be allocated to permanent crops, orchard crops, Mediterranean, you know so food crops and as well as agroforestry systems. Uh, investing in a number of countries, so Ireland, but also looking at the Baltic States, looking at Spain and Portugal, and we're continuing to look at some other geographies as well. So yeah, I think we're very excited about that. We're building up a team in the UK, in Ireland and also in, in Spain and Portugal, you know, to execute on that. And we've had our first close back with some family offices and hoping to do our first investments in Spain and Portugal in the next few weeks actually, which are yeah,
0: coming together. <laughs> Busy weeks, busy weeks. And so what made that shift possible or interesting for you from pure forestry, which you could have done, a, a, a let's say, a continuous forest fund in Europe focused on the Baltics. I mean, there are, there are other places where there's space beyond Ireland, but you decided to expand that vision beyond pure forestry into orchards, into maybe even some silver pasture, et cetera. What was that? I mean, I know you're interested in the food side of things, but what made you decide to mix those things in one fund?
1: Yeah. I would say I think there are some limitations to scalability in forestry in Europe. You know, we, we have looked at multiple uh, countries now over the last two years. And um, yes, there are pockets of opportunity, but I think there's also certain countries where it can be hard to invest, maybe because you know land might be, able to be controlled by, by the governments, by the state, maybe because actually asset prices have been bid up so high now that you know, the returns are super low. So actually, I think we are seeing pockets of opportunity, but um, I don't think it's hard to get the kind of scale which investors are used to in the U.S. or Australia and you know, Latin America. So I think that that was one of the impulses for us to look more broadly. But I think also as a firm, we've done work in grazing, we've done work in you know, annual cropping systems, organic systems, uh, we've done work in forestry. In a way, the last sort of piece of the puzzle was these permanent crop systems. You know? And so it's something that we've always been interested in, and we've always thought there's opportunities there. And I think it's always been probably almost a question for the team as well, what does regenerative agriculture look like within a permanent crop system you know what does it mean for permanent crops because one thing we found is you know the regenerative agriculture movement is much more developed when it comes to grazing and livestock or when it comes to annual cropping systems but when you start digging into permanent crops and orchard systems that you don't find the same body of research the same sort of definitions or the same let's say agreement and what it really means so that became a really interesting puzzle for us you know to try and um to work through and i think as we digged in and as we found some great operators in spain and portugal and elsewhere doing some amazing things you know we got more and more excited about the opportunities that were there and i think the final point is we, we wanted to build a um a diversified portfolio you know so i think there's an attraction to that for investors so it's your forestry which is sort of selling to timber markets you have almonds or olives or pistachio orchards selling to sort of food markets and we're also looking at something like cork, oak, you know, growing um, cork, you know, which is only a completely different market for wine bottle stoppers and other uses. So they're completely uncorrelated. So you get amazing diversification if you invest in these wide range of tree crops. I think the final point, though, is, as well as around carbon. You know, I think the other real goal of this fund is to build a um, climate positive portfolio where we're storing more carbon than we emit. And having a focus on tree crops, you're broadly defined, really gives you that. Whether it's forestry, whether it's permanent crops, you're storing a, a huge amount of carbon within that woody biomass as well as in the soil.
0: Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course, or in the show notes description below. Can you describe, obviously visually, as we're in a podcast, but how would uh, an orchard look like and how would it be different from, let's say, a neighbor or somewhere down the street or, or this, the path uh, where they're not applying regenerative practices? Like, What have been things that you found in this journey when you're uh, finding these operators, these farmers that are doing things that you get excited about what should we envision because we don't talk about olives very much or almonds i mean sometimes when we talk about common land and some others but it's it, you're right we usually talk about livestock annual crops and uh, maybe market gardens etc but not so much about the perennial ones so take us on a journey to some of the exciting ones in portugal and spain that hopefully soon be, be, will be part of the portfolio
1: yeah yeah so I think well, there's two reasons why um, we, we were like perennial crops. I think, you know, first just the financial returns. You know, in, in many cases, these orchard systems are growing high-value uh, food products, which are much in demand, you know, whether it's almonds, or as olives, pistachios, vegetarian products, and um, have a lot of uses. And as we see shifts in diet, whether it's away from meat, you know, towards almond milk or whether it's just towards that Mediterranean diet, you know, which has all the proven health benefits, we see increasing demand for these products. And um, they can be grown in a relatively small regions of the world, you know, which have a, cli- a Mediterranean climate. So there's not a place where you can grow them. And a lot of places where they are grown, such as California, are quite stressed by, by water s- scarcity at the moment. So
0: that's an understatement. Yeah.
1: yeah. So we think there, there's a really nice alignment of, of factors there, which, which mean that, um, you know, these are good areas to invest. You can produce good returns, you know, if you're growing these pro- products. That's the first point. I think the second is, again, going back to carbon, what I mentioned before, you know, when done well, I mean, these systems can store carbon. Now, if you think of carbon in farming or in landscapes like this almost like a clear tiering that goes on where yes you can make gains in annual cropping systems but they're probably the smallest gains per hectare the next up is grazing or shifting from annual cropping to perennial grasslands that stores carbon but then the third after that is permanent crop systems you know perennial woody tree crops and then beyond that forestry and so i think we think it's going to be good for climate good for the environment to to take some of the maybe degraded land which is maybe being you know over tilled and over exploited for annual agriculture and shifting toward these more you know, perennial systems so, so that's sort of the macro trends we really like now the reality of course is that if you look at these orchard systems now as sort they're of conventionally managed there can be quite a few problems associated with them they tend to be very intensively managed you know relying on heavy use of inputs whether synthetic fertilizer pesticides you know chemicals and of course heavy water uses as well and there can be a whole set of issues around soil degradation around you know, nutrient runoff, uh, around pesticide toxicity for farm workers and local communities, and sometimes actually quite high emissions associated with the operations, even if the, the trees themselves are storing carbon. Um, so I think that, that's what's propelled us yet you know, to look for these more regenerative alternatives. And um, yeah, and we have found them. I think the probably the, the key principles of what we're seeing in these in, in these well managed, I say more regenerative orchards, first a cover a focus on cover crops you know, so trying to really move away from bare soil and planting, deliberately planting cover crops you know, in between rows to serve a soil protection function, but also a fertility function too, in case you can grow some of that nitrogen maybe for, for the tree crops. I think the second thing we're seeing is um, a stronger use of biological fertility rather than synthetics, you know, whether that's compost, whether it's some more specialized liquid or uh, biological fertility products. But yeah, we've seen some really amazing results from compost and, and even biochar, in you know, orchard systems. And I think there's a lot more potential there and that sort of shift happens. Probably the third then is around integrated pest management, so really trying to reduce pesticide use. And how do you do that? Well, it could be interplanting uh, beneficial uh, plants know, pollinator habitats, like having a, a healthy insect ecosystem, which is going to keep some of those you know, undesirable you know, bugs you know, under control. And so it's actually having more of a landscape approach and thinking what you do between the rows or, you know, around the, around the borders.
0: Does it also mean making the rose less of a monoculture as mixing them with other species? Do you see that or is is that becomes difficult with harvesting and and things like that? Is it mostly pistachios and that's it? Or do you see also there from the pest perspective or the pressure that it makes sense to have certain oaks in the middle or something else?
1: Intercropping is a great idea in theory, but I think there you quickly run up probably the other major challenge facing all agricultural systems, I think, in particular, orchard systems at the moment, which is a lack of agricultural labour. You know, this is the big challenge, whether you're in California, whether you're in Europe, or in Australia. Um, and yeah. finding people to work on the land is really, really hard. And so, I think we're seeing shift towards more mechanisation. And so, the successful systems will be those which are designed to be mechanised. And so, machines replacing people. Hopefully, machines replacing chemicals too, to an extent, actually. So, this is, I think, the really positive side of that where you're doing more mechanical weed control rather than spraying everything down with chemicals. But I think it does put a little bit of a constraint on what you can do instead of intercropping. And you can have a most beautiful one-hectare farm forestry system where one person devotes their life to managing that. It can be incredibly productive, but it's very, very hard to scale. And so I think we still think there's a huge potential to do things within more intensive, larger-scale mechanized systems. But there you're focusing on what you plant within the rows, probably more in terms of cover crops, rather than actually having like mixtures of different tree tree crops you know, within within the rows.
0: Yeah, so the rows, let's say the perennial is relatively mono, but in between the annuals that you plant, or it could be perennial uh, long grasses and things like that as well. But at least the machineries ha- have to be able to enter. And also there, I think there's an enormous development for lighter, much more selective. I mean, we can't imagine what we're going to see in 10 years there and what then potentially is possible in terms of mixing because the machinery recognizes which tree it should actually harvest and which one it shouldn't. Or, I mean, there's a whole world there to discover, but most of it is not there yet. So you cannot really, you cannot sell a fund on that at the moment, of course.
1: No, but I think actually that technology um, is starting to appear. You know, we're seeing examples in different production systems, whether it's, you know, pheromone-based systems for you know, uh, trapping, suppressing harmful insects. You know, we're seeing you know simple kind of camera-assisted weeding machines which go between the rows and know when it's a tree and know when it's a weed and you know and can cut and not cut. Helps. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think we will see increasing these sort of simple robotics, you could call it, or simple technologically enabled systems for again, as I said before, replacing chemicals with more mechanical vegetation control, which I think will address one of the big issues is you know in chemical use. And I think, you know, probably the the next step beyond that, I've talked about cover crops, we've talked about biological fertility, integrated pest management. Probably the next step beyond that is then actually going fully organic, organic certified systems. So that's going to be a big focus of what we do in Europe now. Again, huge market demand, massive premiums being paid at the moment. Organic almonds sell for literally twice the price as conventional. You know, organic oil is probably more like 25, 30% premium, but there's very strong premiums for these crops. And I think, um, yeah, if you can harness those practices, you know, fully eliminate the synthetic fertilizers and chemicals, and then I think it opens up some really interesting marketing opportunities for growers, because consumers, you know, are willing to pay for that.
0: And do you see this then? This fund or this thesis, investment thesis, as a sort of potential transition as well? Let's say in 10 years, the robotics exist, or maybe there are slightly more hands available, or there's a lot more research saying, showing that also um, more diverse on the perennial side, so more diverse uh, orchards are differently managed, but easily manageable with certain new technologies and machinery. I mean, these, these, but you already anyway, got rid of all the chemical fertilizer and all the chemical inputs. So these uh, orchards can transition relatively easily to more diverse orchard itself over time, if that turned out to be possible. At the moment, it's way better to go from a very let's say, input heavy, uh, chemical heavy orchard to an organic one, even though maybe from an ideal forestry perspective, that's not the ideal yet. But that's the best we currently can do for the markets in terms of the constraints, which are hands, labor, scale, etc. Do you see this as this is not done? I'm imagining you can potentially in 10 years, we'll design an orchard uh, even more, more diverse and different if we get there with the technology and etc.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's also like zooming out, maybe a level. There's definitely a landscape approach. Like whenever you look at a property in Spain or Portugal, there will be an area of maybe highly productive ground, you know, which is where you'd look to plant and, and grow your, your high value orchard crops. But almost certainly there's going to be ten, twenty, fifty percent maybe of of non productive ground, which which maybe isn't irrigated or is in on hillsides. You know, it, it's quite different, and that's really where you can put the focus on biodiversity and conservation and other goals. So I think it's also a big part of what we'll be doing is um, how do you make the best possible use of, of the, the bits in between or the bits around you know, the, the productive uh, hectares and achieve the best outcomes for biodiversity, but also carbon sequestration, but also some of those integrated pest management benefits as well? If you have a healthy functioning ecosystem, that, that is going to have a, a positive knock-on effect on the orchards too by, by controlling your pests and disease.
0: Yeah, I think that landscape approach is very interesting. I mean, there are there a few zooming out of that. I mean, we, we keep hearing it more and more, maybe because we're in this little bubble but definitely CommonLand is working on that, the WWF, or they just spun out actually, the Sustainable, what is it, the Landscape Finance Lab. We had Paul Chatterton definitely do for a check-in. And we've been focusing on that technology question as well, or that question of what to plant where and why in a landscape and what how could software, et cetera, help with that. And we've been recording a series on that, which I'll put a link below as well. But there are very few, because in yeah, many places it makes sense to do certain things or it doesn't. But it goes beyond the confinement of your, your farm. And you would love, of course, that the full landscape is moving in a certain direction and not moving backwards. So you get all kinds of runoff from your neighbors or drifts from all kinds of pesticides and things you really don't want coming in. So you would like your neighbors to move in the same direction. Has that been difficult to find? Is that, is that or what do you see in Spain and Portugal in terms of, let's say, moving together?
1: Yeah, I think and there are some examples of great cooperatives working together trying to try sh- affect landscape change. You mentioned common land, for example, the the project which they're working in the southeast Spain, Albalat, is a really good example of that. Where I think they brought together you know, dozens of producers and farmers and and um, you know in- implementing regenerative systems for organic rainfed almonds and pistachios. They've also built their own processing capabilities, their own brand, and I think is working very very well. So that, that I think there are examples of that, and I think also for us like we. We also see within, even within a single property boundary, you can actually achieve some of the same results. You know, so for example, we're looking at a property in the southeast of Spain at the moment. It's about a thousand hectares in total of that. About 500 hectares would be suitable for growing rain fed organic almonds and pistachios. But the other 500 hectares is really non arable, non productive land, which is hill size, which is, um, you know, it could be riparian areas. And so, you know, how do you design and manage those 500 hectares within the property boundaries to still have those positive impacts on biodiversity and carbon? Then? some of the positive spillover effects for productive land. So I think that's one of the advantages working those countries which have a bit more scale where properties are larger is that you get some of the landscape benefits within your own property.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then there's 500. Are you looking at, I don't know, are you supporting the farmer and and doing things there as well from the mushrooms to the honey to the grazing maybe? Or is it really, okay, we, we manage it for biodiversity and that's the impact? Or are you looking at smaller niche things or maybe you not specifically as a fund, but... The operators you work with um, to somehow use between brackets that other piece as well for food production.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, so honey is what was one thing for sure. I think there, there's some potentials there. We're looking at uh, looking at actually you know, aromatics and medicinal herbs. You know, planting those sometimes be, um, between rows or around the orchards. We've seen some potential there. But I think then carbon. You know, as you looking to restore. Forestry and shrubland, you know, for real carbon benefits, uh, you know, I think there are some interesting projects going on like that. There's potential payments available, you know, from corporates who want to offset emissions. And, you know, there are some interesting opportunities for tree planting and, and to, to really, you know, with these would have been probably more heavily forested, you know, uh, hillsides. And if you go back a few hundred years ago, they have been cleared and degraded, you know, and probably overgrazed and poorly grazed. So I think we do see some opportunities to re-establish forests there, not so much for commercial purposes, but more for carbon biodiversity purposes.
0: And so you're in the phase now of buying some of these properties this week, and maybe when this is out, that that already happened. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Where, Where do you see this going? How long is the fund? How long is the approach? What are you looking at in terms of time? Because, of course, with the tree crops and permanent orchard Timing is always longer than the arable ones you're doing, the organic grain you're doing in in the US. What, what's your thinking on on timing as we it comes back time and time again in this podcast?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's something we've thought a lot about because in many ways these are permanent assets. You know, they they keep going; they don't have a finite life. But, YSL, yeah. yeah, but but I think we've also got feedback from investors who say that they quite like the discipline of a fixed term fund. Because it gives them the option to get out if they want. It provides managers with incentive, let's say, to to really you know improve and make things work up to a certain point. Um, so I think you know our funds so far have all been fixed-term funds with a ten to fourteen-year term. This new fund will be similar. It will have a ten to fourteen-year term. So there will be an exit. Now, what is that exit? You know, I think it's not as if you know all the properties, farms, or forests are broken up and sold. You know, I think. Probably the most likely exit. Yeah, because I can
0: imagine that that might be the fear of a farmer. Let's say I'm I'm a farmer in, in central Spain or in Portugal. I partner with you. I buy the neighbor or the neighbors, and together, and we we start on this great journey. And then in ten years, you come knocking and said, "I'm sorry, but the time is up. We have to sell." And who knows what's going to happen to that land? How, how do you prevent that from happening? Because I can imagine. That would be a fear for yeah. some of the partners you work with.
1: Yeah. So I think it's, it's consistent with what the most likely exit is, which is you're selling a, a well-developed portfolio of, of uh, farming and forestry assets, which are hopefully by then generating good cash yield. So we think there's going to be a lot of investor interest in that. Um, and so it, it wouldn't make sense to break up those portfolios, to kick off the farmers, because what's making it work is the presence of those farmers, those local partners on the ground. So you'd be kind of shooting yourselves in the foot. You know, it's it to go down that road. So I think, you know, if things are working well, that's part of our job really is to help convince people that this, these assets really do work. You know, they are profitable, they're they're good for the environment, and they can keep going, you know, for another 10, 20 years. And so, yeah, most likely you keep the portfolio and you have another investors who come in at that point. Or maybe some of the investors in the existing fund, you know, are so happy with the results that they, they want to stay in. And at that point, it is possible to to have a almost a conversion to a more permanent vehicle where you give investors the option to get out if they want to get out. And those want to stay in and can stay in. So I think it's keeping options open, but you know the, the key goal is building that portfolio of well-managed income-generating assets. You know, delivering a, you know, high impact. And once you're at that point, I think there's a lot of different attractive options for, for what you do next. for that, you know, that next ten years and beyond.
0: And do you see any route for the farmers to grow into that? In a sense that they might end up owning part of the land, of all that land, or is that are the assets so expensive that that's prohibitive over the next 10, 14 years?
1: I think it's something we're discussing with some of the farmers we work with, you know, having, they would have a first offer, first right of offer effectively on the property. So I think it it can be a a ladder to land ownership for them. I think we're also realistic too, you know, I think that, you know, farmers are businessmen and women and, you know, that there's a certain amount of their capital they want to invest in land, but they also need
0: capital for other things, you know, for machinery, for working capital, for... And just to be clear that when we get into the operating model, but that's not what you're offering. You're offering capital for the land.
1: Primarily. And the trees, you know, and the development of the land. So, So I think... We found good operating teams, farmers and companies you work with, you know, they 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 need capital for other purposes, you know, um, and that also be building processing and going down the supply chain You know, and building markets as well. So actually, while some may want a certain amount of land, not all want all their capital and land, you know, so I think there there is a, a natural synergy between long term investors, you know, who have a lower cost of capital and are willing to invest in land and trees and biological assets. And then the operators who can come and, and, and operate that um, and designing the arrangements in the appropriate way. It's probably the probably what, one of the aspects of this new fund we are most excited about as well is that operating model. You know, something we spent a lot of time thinking of through over the last 10 years. And we've seen lots of people try different operating models. You know, you, on the one hand, you have a sort of people who want to buy and operate, buy land, hire people. And try and capture all the profits, which you've been doing in in
0: Australia, basically.
1: Which you've done, to extent in yeah. Australia, we built teams, we, we're running those grazing properties there. So we know all the what it takes, all the good and the bad, and the, the challenges that goes with that. And so that in the theories that captures the full profits of the system, you know, for the investor. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've seen quite passive you know, buy and lease models, where you know a lot of money just goes into buying farmland, leasing out an annual one, two, three year leases you know, to farmers, where there's really no input in what happens on on the land. So And that can be, we think, a little bit too passive. What we find is um, we think there's an opportunity for more of a a, um, a partnership model with local operators, which is what we've been doing in Spain and Portugal. So we've been finding great local operators. They could be individual farmers. Quite often, they're small, medium-sized enterprises, companies. They might be specialists in organic olives or in regenerative almonds or pistachios. And they may have a certain amount of land which they own and manage. They may have invested in processing and they may be developing brands and, and, and marketing capabilities down, downstream. They want to grow, they want to scale. They don't have the capital to invest in that land. Neither do they necessarily want to invest in that land because their cost of capital is higher. You know, they've been more of a private, equity or business cost of capital. So there's a natural synergy where we, our fund can come in, work with these operators to find the right kind of land. You know, we invest in it. We provide capital for planting new trees, for maybe organic conversion, whatever is happening, on you know, develop the land. And then the operators come in and operate day to day. They're in charge. They're responsible. But we both fund the operating expenses, so we're sharing operating expenses as well. And then we're sharing revenue or, or profit you know, between the investor and the operator. So it's 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 a, a sort of a bespoke hybrid model we develop. But it's got a very good reception among some of these you know, great innovative, I'd say, ecological operators in Spain and Portugal. And yeah, we're quite excited about that. We think it's a real way we can scale. And you know, the bigger picture, I think is. Really understanding what's the role of capital, you know, and, and, and capital not maybe overstepping its boundaries. You know, we see some investors maybe getting a little bit too greedy because they see the numbers in the spreadsheet and they think, oh, why don't I capture the full returns, you know, from organic animals or organic galls? And you know, I'll just hire people and capture all those profits. But the reality is often quite different. It looks good in the spreadsheet, but when you know, as you try and do it, often it doesn't work. You know, and that's partly because um you need the local operator's the most important um, person, and that person must have aligned incentives. And if they're just an employee, if they're just a hired gun, then you don't always get um, you don't always get the best attention, and, and you know yeah, you don't always get the, the right alignment. And so we think the, these operating partnerships are the way to go because you're getting the best teams who have the local knowledge expertise, and you're aligning the incentives with, with those of the investors for And
0: how did you find them in Spain and Portugal? Is that going around? Is that having a lot of coffees? Is that getting in a car and, and visiting many of these? Is how, how did you how do you build that up?
1: Yeah, a lot of coffee, good to me Spain to Portugal, lots of good wine too. So it makes it quite an enjoyable experience. Um, yeah, so it's it's networking referrals. We've hired a, an agronomist in Portugal. Uh, João Rosero has joined our team, is uh, in Lisbon. So he's got an amazing network in Portugal already and in, and in Spain too. And then we've, yeah, we've been doing our own work and then we've come in through networks, whether it's regenerative agriculture networks or maybe some organic olive oil producer networks or yeah, different, different entry points, let's say, to start talking to people and explain what we do. Yeah. And we found probably six or seven different groups now that sort of fit the bill. And I think we'll, we'll find more as, as as we go along.
0: Is that a model that you could see growing beyond that? And why do you see, maybe it's a difficult question, but why you see others not applying that? And maybe I mean, you meant the greedy part, but I think then people notice very quickly that the spreadsheet is very different from reality. And do they then abandon that? Or do you see that as a risk as well? Actually, many questions. Let's say, do you see this going beyond Spain and Portugal? And others copying this or also applying this method, because of course it's not a, it's not a, there's no patent on it, but it makes a lot of sense because it's so context specific.
1: Yeah. So I think the first question absolutely, uh, we see it going beyond Spain and Portugal. We're actually working on a similar strategy in the U.S. at the moment, in the the west coast of the U.S., looking at California, Washington, Oregon area, where we see some opportunities there around permanent specialty crops, especially organic certified. And we have also found some great local operators there. And we see uh, a yeah, similar potential, you know, to, for investors to come in and provide capital for land acquisition and you know, tree establishment and, and organic conversion. And, and we can enter into probably more like long term leases, but with very flexible terms where the investor is really sharing some of that risk with the farmer and then sharing some of the upside too, you know, post organic conversion, or post conversion to more generative systems. So I think there's definitely potential all over the world, wherever agriculture is practiced in a commercial way risk of other copying well I, we hope everyone does copy i think you know i think it's a good model so i think it's uh, i think it's what the sector needs you know is um capital playing its rightful role you know not getting too greedy not overstepping its bounds you know knowing when to leave the local operators really much in charge in the driving seat and, and being supportive of those local operators so it all comes back to those farmers foresters who have that ecological knowledge and local knowledge you know and how do we empower them and support them and help them help them grow so yeah i hope more people you know try those approaches
0: And because we have had, I think, a wave of investments previously, I don't remember exactly when, but it was a wave of interest in farmland and forestry. And many institutional investors, I wouldn't say got burned, but there was a lot of discussion on the non-ecological approaches, the land grabbing, land titles. And and many, maybe they took a step back and, and said, okay, for now, I won't touch these sectors. You see now, or you mentioned, there's definitely a new interest. Do you have to explain very often that this is very fundamentally different than some of the let's buy and build an enormous plantation somewhere very far away and let's operate it and bring in everything. Like is that stigma still sort of there? Or what do you see in terms in the institutional investors so that obviously very different from a family that's investing? They have to go through all kinds of hoops, jump through everything and cover many things and tick many boxes, rightfully so because they're investing our pension money. But do you see that it's still difficult to sell quote unquote agriculture, land and forestry? Or is it is that has that changed over the last years?
1: Yeah, well, I think the local context is very important, you know, so we wouldn't attempt our model in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, you know, or, or many parts of the emerging world, because I think, you know, in countries where 75% of people earn their livelihoods from agriculture, from the land, you know, the idea of sort of coming in and, and trying to, you know, push people off land and build up these giant holdings, I think it is very problematic, actually. You know, I think you know, we're operating in, in Europe and in North America and Australia, where actually it's the opposite is the case where people have left the land and land has been almost abandoned and neglected and everyone's moved to the towns and the cities and the average age of farmers is you know 60 plus so there's actually been this great exodus you know and so there i think you know i think there are opportunities to come in for capital to provide to play this sort of longer term almost catalytic role of you know pushing some of these systems you know in a better direction and helping these more innovative often younger farmers expand you know that's the other thing the people the farmers who work in america for example are the average age is probably more like mid thirties, you know. So we're working at farmers who are significantly lower than the average,
0: about half, yeah,
1: yeah. And and their challenge: how do they get access to land? Because land is expensive; it's you know held up, tied up in trusts and, and different kind of structures. A lot of it, a lot of it has been leased or has been um, is not been owner occupied anyway. But it's still very hard for them to get that access. So we can help. So I think I think it's locally contextually appropriate, and I think in those economies where. The center of of attention and most jobs have shifted away from agriculture, away from rural areas. And I think we feel much more comfortable about about playing that role of being a a catalytic investor.
0: It's very interesting, the the land ownership discussion, which comes back time and time again. and, And then the reality hits in, of course, that many young farmers that want to move into the space simply cannot get access to land unless you're born into it or you have a very interesting bank account. Or you borrow a lot of money and you're pushed into, if you even can, pushed into an agriculture system that that has to serve that money you borrowed from a bank against terms that are not very flexible as a land could, could offer. So it's a very, it's an interesting philosophical discussion about land ownership and should that be privatized or not, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also a very practical one that many who want to farm don't have access to enough land to farm or even any land to farm and are stuck in in, in the system and are yeah could probably farm for the next 30, 40 years and provide a lot of very interesting food to us if they could get access to that. So it's a, it's one to, to keep coming back to you and check reality with, obviously. Yeah. And some questions I always like to ask, uh, but I didn't get five years ago because it was a very different podcast. Where are you contrarian? What do you believe to be true about regenag and forestry? Let's add it here as well that others don't believe to be true. This is definitely inspired by John Kemp, who, who does a very interesting, very deep podcast on soil and everything. But where are you contrarian in terms of, I mean, you already mentioned the focus on orchard is, you said it's been a bit neglected in the space, but where else, if you go to conferences, which I know you do a lot or did a lot now virtually, where do you, do you see yourself that you think fundamentally different than many in the space? Yeah.
1: I would say one is a belief that, um, you know, these regenerative management systems, which have these positive environmental impacts can be consistent with you know, highly commercial and also scalable you know, operations, you know, that it, it isn't all one hectare farm forestry. You know, you can have, you know, large scale commercial operations, which are producing, you know, good volumes of, of healthy, nutritious food or good quality timber from a forest and, and are still managed in these ecological ways. And, and not only is it possible, it's probably a necessity because the realities are, as I said, you know, labor is scarce, you know, um, people don't want to work on the land. So we need to find these more, you know, you need to find efficient ways to, to manage land still. So we're not trying to go back in time. We're really trying to go forward in time. You know, these are the modern versions of ecological systems. Um, I mean, just one example of that we, we see in the olive space, you know, there's been um, um, a whole a, sort of a shift ongoing in Spain and Portugal now away from, let's see, the more traditional you know, olive orchards where you have very low tree densities, maybe unirrigated, you know, low input, but also actually very expensive to manage and often quite unprofitable because uh, you rely on actually hand pruning and and actually either manual harvesting or or mechanized with shakers, and it's actually quite inefficient and um, quite unprofitable. A shift towards more, called super high-density systems where you're planting olive um, trees, actually in rows, uh, much higher density, almost more like hedgerows, and they develop these uh, machines that come right over the top and harvest from the bushes directly and can take those olives, harvest them quickly, get them to processing facilities quickly and turn them into olive oil quickly too. And that... On the face, you think super high-density doesn't sound very nice. You know, you think intensive. Sounds industrial. Yeah, sounds industrial. This must be bad. But if you actually dig in, you see that... um, So first, in terms of olive oil quality, there's been a huge increase in the quality of olive oil, the proportion of extra virgin olive oil, for example, with low acidity in Portugal over the last 10 years. And that's because of the shift from these traditional to super high-density systems. The reason being that you can get this much quicker harvest and you can get the olives through the processing within twenty-four hours. And that's probably the key factor of olive oil quality is actually just the efficiency. Yeah. So
0: it's speed from tree to mill, basically. That's the
1: Yeah, from ripeness to harvesting to mill to processing. If you can do all that within twenty-four hours, you'll get a high quality olive oil. So we're actually seeing higher quality oils coming out of the systems. Second in terms of the impacts, you know, there have been some issues with uh, night harvesting, uh, having a, a detrimental impact on uh, nesting birds. So I think that needs to go away. But once you take that away, there's been some very interesting research on the carbon benefits of super high-density olives, where actually these systems are store a huge amount of, uh, more carbon per hectare than the more traditional systems. Partly, you're getting a lot more biomass growth, you're getting a lot more pruning and residues, and they are reincorporated into the ground, either directly or through composting. Um, you can get some quite spectacular increases in, in soil as well as above-ground carbon. So in terms of for carbon and climate, you know, these intensive orchards are actually far superior. And then I think the third, you know, we are seeing some operators in Spain and Portugal who are able to manage those orchards in fully organic ways. So they've taken out all the synthetic fertilizer and all the, the pesticides and, and are achieving you know, very high organic yield. So for us, that's a, a kind of a holy grail where you have a, a, an intensive, highly productive, high-yielding system, managed organically, very, very good for carbon, and very good for quality, let's say a product. So, so I think, I think that that's what we've got to keep looking for. You know, these modern, let's say modern regenerative ag systems. You know, not sort of going back in time to, to what it was a hundred years ago. So that's that's one thing that we believe in. I think we, we think that that's where, yeah, that's the direction of travel we need need to go in.
0: And and in terms of quality, you mentioned the the Eva, obviously, and in terms of. Let's say the, the nutrient density or the measurement of the quality of the olive oil. What have you seen there, or is that still very early? Because many say older trees give, well managed obviously, give X Y Z, and compared to younger ones or younger systems, do you see there, or is is that simply, let's say, quality is Evo, and, and that's what we're looking at?
1: Yeah. And so I think yeah, some of the best olive oil in the world will come from these more traditional systems. So that what we see is just huge variation in quality. So you have some extraordinarily high quality. Olive oil is coming from some of these orchards, but also a lot of quite poor olive oil, too. So, you know, what these more moderators do is...
0: And these orchards are being abandoned at the moment, right? The, yeah.
1: In many cases, you know, huge issues with disease, zillelofasidiosis, actually attacking traditional
0: orchards more. So. Yeah, how is the disease pressure then on these high-intensive ones? As the trees are, I mean, for my non-extreme knowledge, like the trees are closer to each other, so if one gets sick, everything gets sick, or is that too easy or they use different varieties or stronger trees or something
1: well i think a lot a lot of it is the health of the tree so a healthy tree is more resistant to um, pests and diseases and if you are supplying the right fertility the trees are getting the right amount of water and they're being pruned in the right way then yeah you you can have quite healthy vigorous trees so that's probably the greatest protection you can get from some of these pests and diseases and things like the Zella lfcidiosos this new disease has been coming in and sweeping through olive orchards in italy has been primarily affecting unfortunately old traditional orchards you know it's been in puglia that's where the problem is being not so much the actually more modern well-run let's say intensive orchards so that's just in terms of contrarianism just we don't want to forsake the efficiencies you know by going regenerative and we think it is possible i think the other one is again probably the operating model that we talked about before like how do we find how do we work with the best possible operators on the ground and design the right structures which are going to and bring them on board and incentivize them and, and align their incentives with those of our investors. That's something we, we think is really, really important and getting away from that spreadsheet agriculture to you know, these partnerships on the ground. I, I, that's another, I think, big, big focus area for us at, at the moment. And maybe just a final one, if you want one more, I'd say as investing in Europe. you know, In itself, the idea of investing...
0: It's contrarian, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, in, in, in natural assets in Europe is a bit contrarian because most of the investments going to the US, Australia, Latin America... People think Europe is fragmented or old or expensive. And and it can be all those things. But we think there's also some really interesting opportunities, both in forestry in certain countries and, and then in Spain and Portugal and the orchard side. So, yeah, and, and I think you, and you get some you know, good, appropriate returns with all the low risk that comes from you know, investing in, in, in the Eurozone as well. And
0: if you could change one thing, so you had a magic wand that gave you magic power in the food and agriculture or the forestry space or in general could be global consciousness or like I keep saying better taste or etc cetera, etc cetera. what would you do if you had that magic power over overnight and you could only one in this case only one only one thing could be changed in the impact investing or agriculture and forestry space
1: I still think a lot more works needed to allow us to generate and sell carbon offsets you know from land-based projects particularly strange enough in places like Europe where you can get into funny issues around double counting and what people can trade and use, it's um, ironically easier for a corpus to buy like a credit from or, or EDD forestry project in Asia or South America. It is actually to, to invest in forestry or agriculture projects in Europe, you know, because of the way carbon accounting rules are set up. So I think there's a lack of clarity there, and I think um, you know, having a clear, consistent set of rules around what qualifies as stored carbon, and you know how producers can get compensated and rewarded, you know, for doing that. For increasing that i really think that could be a like a, a massive booster you know of some of these systems you know and we've all been talking about it for 10 years but we're still not quite there <laughs> so hopefully the next 10 years some of those schemes will get clarified and come more into view and be more practical for producers on the ground
0: yeah i think it's there's a lot of talk and i hope some of that will be transferred into practical tools for the operators and farmers on the ground and the people partnering with them like yourself and not necessarily I see a company popping up probably every other week that promises all kinds of soil carbon credits and tree credits et cetera, but it also I also get the feeling there are a lot of cowboys uh, getting in because they see the excitement for the word soil carbon and tree carbon in the same sentence so it, it's going to be a rough ride I think for over the next years because a lot of these things are looking amazing on spreadsheet and very easy on spreadsheet and when it comes down to actually Verifying, measuring, and selling these things, and making sure they they keep they stay in the ground and in the tree, it's uh, the reality is slightly different and more difficult, and not absolutely necessary. And we have to figure it out, but it's not so easy. So let's see that we will keep following that, obviously, with the podcast. So I completely agree. Of we need clarity and we need bigger markets there, more flow because not enough flows to the to the operators and the farmers and the landowners that are doing this work in many cases, like you said, for decades, and maybe I would even have to be compensated for that and not the ones that have been, let's say the free rider problem is an issue here. The ones that have been performing the worst and are now planting the trees might get the biggest the biggest payout, which is not really what we want, I think. We want to also support the ones that have been on this for many decades. Yeah, for sure. So I don't want to keep any more of your time. I want to be conscious of it as well. And thank you so much for sharing and this check-in. Let's make sure we don't do the next one after five years, but a bit earlier.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Gunn. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, great to catch up and... Uh yeah we followed your podcast series of great interest in the last five years so well done to you too for, uh, for getting some great speakers on over and hope long may it continue thanks
0: if you found the investing in regenerative agriculture and food podcast valuable there are a few simple ways you can use to support it number one rate and review the podcast on your podcast app that's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast and it only takes a few seconds number two share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues number three if this podcast has been of value to you and if you have the means please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com/investingregionegg or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.